Hello, I'm Derek Walker. I'm the pastor of the Oxford Bible Church. Today we're continuing our investigation of where was the temple located. We've been looking at two competing theories as to where the temple was. The temples of God, you see, can't just be anywhere. They have to be in a place ordained by God. There's been a general consensus among the experts that the temple was on what is known today as the Temple Mount. And the standard view and the official Jewish belief is that the Holy of Holies was built on the exposed bedrock at the natural peak of the hill on which the temple platform was built. And this bedrock, called the Foundation Stone, is now covered by that beautiful golden dome of the rock. However, a modern theory of Ernest Martin and popularized by Robert Cornucchi has thrown this all into question. They propose that the temples were not on the Temple Mount, but down in the city of David, and it was the Roman Antonia Fortress that occupied what we know today as the Temple Mount. We've seen that God fixed the location of the temple to Mount Moriah by guiding Abraham to offer up Isaac there. Already this disqualifies Martin's theory because it requires Abraham to offer up Isaac within the original city of Jerusalem, which does not fit the description of a mount. Then we saw that God revealed to David that the altar of the temple was to be on a threshing floor and that the Holy of Holies on the nearby hilltop. This again disqualifies Martin's theory because threshing floors are always in the agricultural areas outside a city on high ground where they can catch the wind. So the temple couldn't be in the original Jerusalem, now called the city of David. All of this supports the standard view that Mount Moriah, on which the temple was built, is the hill to the north of the city of David. As we continue the history of the temple, we come to Solomon who was tasked with building it, according to the previous revelations given to Abraham, that it must be on Mount Moriah, and to David, that the Holy of Holies must be on the hilltop where the angel of the Lord appeared to David, and that the altar must be on Ornan's threshing floor. That's exactly what Chronicles tells us. Now, Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, one, on Mount Moriah, two, where the Lord had appeared to his father David, that's the, the peak, and three, at the place where David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So the altar was on the threshing floor, which was near the summit, but on the eastern slope, thus protecting it from the strong gusts of wind coming from the west from the Mediterranean Sea. And so God set up the original event with David and the angel of the Lord in their exact positions as a template for all future sacrifices in the temple. David stood on the threshing floor and offered sacrifices on the altar before the Lord, who was standing on the hilltop. David stood exactly where the priests would later stand, offering up sacrifices in the, at the altar before the Lord, who was in the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies, of course, that's exactly where the angel of the Lord stood before David. What a beautiful picture. In this picture, we see Solomon's temple on Mount Moriah, above, and to the north of the city of David, with David's palace in the city of David, above the Milo. And the Gihon Spring fortifications, they're lower down on its eastern slope. In between the temple and the city of David, David was the offal area, which might well have included Solomon's palace, houses for the well-connected and administrative buildings. Surrounding all of this were the new city walls built by Solomon. 
And so the building of the temple caused a major expansion of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem's also called Zion. Jerusalem expanded to the north in Solomon's time, and the center of holiness now was now, of course, the temple on the northern hill. Psalm 48 describes this new reality. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, that means height, the joy of the whole earth, is Mount Zion, on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. So this psalm describes the location of the temple as being in his holy mountain, also now called Mount Zion which is on the sides of the north, that is, on the north side of the original city. And beautiful in elevation, that is, on the higher ground above the original city. Needless to say, this description perfectly fits the classic view that the temple was built on the mountain to the north of the original Zion. As a city grows, the new part of a city takes on the same name as the old city. So now the whole area that included the city of David and Solomon's expansion to the north is named Zion. So when Jerusalem or Zion expanded to the north, this whole area was now called Zion. And the Temple Mount in the northern part was now called Mount Zion, because it was the mount. So from this time, Mount Moriah was named Mount Zion, the mountain of the Lord which is why the name Mount Moriah is not seen after this in the Bible. Whereas Zion described the whole new expanded city, that was composed of two parts. The first part is Zion, the city of David. That refers specifically to the original Zion of David's time. And the second part is the Solomonic expansion to the north, which is especially the Temple Mount, which is called Mount Zion. Thus, the name Mount Zion exclusively refers to the mountain or the high point of Zion. So, whereas Psalm 48 celebrates God's presence in Zion, the city of God, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, he's especially present in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, because that's where his throne is in the Holy of Holies at the highest point of the city of the great king. And so Zion expands, the whole thing is Zion, but the Temple Mount is now called Mount Zion because it's on the mount above the original Zion. More proof that Solomon's temple was not in the city of David is seen from the movements of the Ark of the Covenant and Pharaoh's daughter. One chronicle says, David built houses for himself in the city of David and he prepared a place for the Ark of God and pitched a tent for it and that David brought up the ark of God from Kiriath-Jairim to the place David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it at Jerusalem. So, when the ark of the covenant was returned to Jerusalem, it was kept in a tent in the city of David. When David died, Solomon became king. One Kings tells us Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. When Solomon had finished these projects, we read, Solomon brought the daughter of Pharaoh up from the city of David to the house he had built for her. For he said, My wife shall not dwell in the house of David, king of Israel, because the places to which the ark of the Lord has come are holy. So she lived in David's palace while the temple was being built. 
which proves that the temple was not built where David's palace was in the city of David, for that would have required its destruction. This also tells us that the ark was kept in the grounds of David's palace, the same location as Pharaoh's daughter. Solomon realized this created a problem, because the ark made the palace holy, holy ground, and she was an idolater. This was the major reason why she had to be moved as soon as possible. Notice that she was brought up from the city of David to higher ground outside the city of David to her palace, which was part of Solomon's palace complex, probably on the offal, between the city of David and the Temple Mount. Kings confirms this. Pharaoh's daughter came up from the city of David to her house, her palace, which Solomon had built for her. So, Solomon's palace complex must have been built outside and above the city of David, and the temple had to be on higher ground above that. These verses disprove Martin's theory, which requires the temple to be built in the city of David over the top of David's palace. But his Egyptian wife, Solomon's Egyptian wife, was still living in David's palace during and after the temple was built. So this is impossible. Also, these verses remind us that any theory must also explain the location of Solomon's palace complex. Now, just to fit his temple into the city of David, Kornuki has to use a much smaller temple mount than what is prescribed in the Jewish records. He doesn't even have enough room for all its buildings. So there is certainly no room for Solomon's palace complex in addition. Realizing that Kornuki's temple mount within the city of David is impossible, because it contradicts the scriptures we're looking at, some have come up with an alternative theory which has the temple just north of the city of David on the offal. Apart from the fact that, with this view, Kornuki's main arguments in favour of his site no longer apply to this new site, this theory also leaves no room for Solomon's palace complex, which had to be lower than the temple, that is, between the city of David and the temple. A final nail in the coffin of Kornuki's theory is the final journey of the ark. When the temple was completed, there was a great procession of all the leaders and priests to bring the ark up from David's palace into its place in the Holy of Holies of the temple. Kings tells us that King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and chiefs of the Israelite families to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. This clearly tells us, in direct contradiction to Kornuki's theory, that the temple was not in the city of David, because the ark was taken from the city of David, the original Zion, up to a location outside the city of David, which was on higher ground. So it was taken from Zion, the city of David, up to Mount Zion. This procession is described in Kings. All the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon. All the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. Then they brought up the ark of the Lord. Then the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place, into the inner sanctuary of the temple, to the most holy place. This procession makes perfect sense according to the classic theory. Starting from David's palace on the high point of the city of David, it went up through the area where Solomon's palace complex was still under construction and then ascended further to the hilltop which of course is the appropriate place for a temple however by Kornuki's theory where the temple is within the city of David this procession makes no sense at all 
there is no journey for the ark to make, for it starts in David's palace and ends in the temple, which had to be built on top of David's palace, according to the theory. Another confirmation of the temple being on the Temple Mount comes when the glory of God leaves the temple in 588 BC because of Israel's idolatry. Ezekiel sees the glory of God leave the temple through its east gate and then go directly east to stand over the peak of the Mount of Olives. We read, the cherubim stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. And then it says, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. And so the, it has to be that the top of the Mount of Olives has to be directly east of the temple. And that is true. The peak of the Mount of Olives is directly east of the Temple Mount. But east of the city of David is just the edge of the Mount of Olives, where it falls away. The Jewish records also in the Mishnah say that the original Temple Mount and hence the sacred enclosure, the real holy space, was six, sorry, 500 cubits square. Cubits about 18 to 21 inches. There were later expansions of the Temple Mount, the platform, by the Hasmoneans and King Herod. And although I don't have time to demonstrate this now, these measurements agree perfectly with the classic Temple Mount platform as we have it today. And it's even possible to reconstruct the exact position of the original 500 cubit squared sacred square from the clues on the mount itself. However, if one tries to fit the Mishnah's 500 cubit temple platform in the narrow city of David so that it goes over the Gion Spring, it just doesn't fit. It would have to cross over the Kidron Valley and cover part of the hill on the other side. The green square shows the Mishnah's platform fitting into the classic Temple Mount, and the red square shows it how it doesn't fit into the city of David. Kornuki uh, adapts Martin's theory, but he has to have a tiny Temple Mount to make it fit into the city of David. Its size is shown in purple. Sadly, it's never been possible to do archaeology on the Temple Mount because of Islamic opposition to that no doubt from a fear that more proof of its Jewish connection might be discovered. However, there has been archaeological work around the western and southern retaining walls, and this has provided further evidence that confirms that this indeed was the Temple Mount. Just as Jesus predicted in AD 70, the Romans destroyed the temple buildings and all the stones from the buildings on the Temple Mount on the platform were thrown down to the streets below, cracking the first century pavement. And that's exactly what was discovered. And we can actually still see some of them today at the southwest corner, and they were left in place. Some of them were left in place by the archaeologists. And one of these stones in particular is of special interest called the trumpeting stone, as it had an inscription in Hebrew that says, to the trumpeting place. It was a directional sign for priests who blew a trumpet announcing the beginning and end of the Sabbath and for other announcements. And it was found exactly where we'd expect to find it if the standard view is correct because the perfect place for announcements to reach the main population of Jerusalem below was the southwest corner. This was actually the pinnacle of the temple where Satan took Jesus to declare himself uh, to as many people as possible by jumping down off it. A replica of the trumpeting stone 
is there in the, in the very place where it was discovered and the original is in the Israel Museum. Further confirmations that we have the correct Temple Mount are the two Temple Warning Stones discovered near the Temple Mount to the north, but they were actually a long way away from the city of David. These stones mark the limit of the court of the Gentiles on the Temple Mount, beyond which the Gentiles were for forbidden to go. It reads in Greek, no stranger is to enter in to, within the balustrade around the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will be responsible to himself for his death, which will ensue. It symbolized the middle wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles that's spoken of in Ephesians 2.14 that is now removed in Christ. Finally, we need to consider the main arguments for the Martin Kornuki theory. Why do they feel the need to come up with this new theory? The first one concerns the name Zion. They appeal to the many biblical references of the temple being on Zion or Mount Zion. And since, they say, the original city of David was called Zion, they deduce from that that all references to Zion in the Bible can only apply to the original Jerusalem, the city of David. But that's not how language works with city expansions. For example, I live in Oxford. That's a historic city that used to have walls. Now that doesn't mean, if I say I live in Oxford, that I live in the within the original walls, because, which actually just enclose quite a small area in the center of Oxford. You see, as a city expands, the area of expansion takes on the same name. So when Zion expanded to the north, the name Zion now included the Temple Mount. So Zion consists of the original Zion, which is the city of David, and then also the, Mount, the Temple Mount, which is called Mount Zion, or the mountain connected to Zion. And then again, actually, the city expanded further in the time of Hezekiah. It expanded onto the Western Hill. And then that also was called Zion. So the Temple Mount became part of Zion when the city expanded over the Temple Mount. So there's no problem here. Their second argument is the appeal to Jesus' prophecy that all the stones of the temple must be cast down. They would be cast down. And they point out that many of the great stones of the retaining wall of the Temple Mount from Jesus' time are still there in place today. Therefore, this could not be the original Temple Mount. Let's actually look at Jesus' prophecy there in Matthew 24. It says, Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples went up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now it's vital to read verses in context. Jesus was clearly talking about the buildings of the temple, which had recently been made splendid by Herod. And he, he covered the temple facade with white marble and gold. And he made the temple complex, those buildings there, one of the wonders of the world. Notice it says his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. And then Jesus said, do you not see all these things? What things? The buildings of the temple. Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another. He's talking about the buildings of the temple. He's not talking about the retaining walls of the Temple Mount platform, which is different from the temple itself. Mark's Gospel makes it even clearer. It says, Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what manner of buildings are here. 
It's talking about the buildings. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So if we look at the Temple Mount today, we see Jesus' prophecy was perfectly fulfilled. Nothing remains of the temple buildings on top of the mount. A third argument is about the fresh water needed by the temple, saying that there had to be running water for the priests to wash and also to wash the temple because of all the blood from the sacrifices. And the only fresh water spring was the Gihon Spring in the city of David. So the temple had to be in the vicinity of the Gihon Spring in the city of David. And this is reinforced by Psalm 87. It says, and of Zion it will be said, all my springs are in you. But this is a statement about Zion, Jerusalem, not about the temple. Also, Joel 3.18 says, it will come to pass in that day that a fountain will flow from the house of the Lord. But this is a prophecy about a future temple in the millennium. The same could be said about Ezekiel's vision of rivers, of a river flowing out from a future glorious temple in the Messianic age, Ezekiel 47. It obviously didn't describe the first and second temples. In fact, consideration of water sources only puts the final nail into Martin's theory. Jewish records tell us that tell us that the water for the temple came through an aqueduct from Solomon's pools at Etam near Bethlehem. These were 21 meters higher than the temple. And so the water flowed freely to the temple mount and its cisterns. The siphon effect means that water can flow uphill for part of the journey as long as the source is higher than the endpoint. It also means that this water could be released from the cisterns at will onto the mount when it was needed for cleansing. So the temple was cleansed by the abundant water coming from the spring at Etam, or Ein Atan, located near Bethlehem. It didn't come from the Gihon, and the water was transported to the temple by an aqueduct. There are three Jewish sources from the second temple that tell us this. Jerusalem Talmud says, a conduit ran from Etam to the temple. Another Jewish source says, how is the temple court cleaned? Seal the area and let the water from the aqueduct enter it till it becomes clean like milk. And the Mishnah also tells us that the water for filling the copper laver each day was brought by a conduit from the pools of Bethlehem. So it was not necessary to use the Gihon for the temple. In fact, the Gihon was used for the water needs of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In any case, during the first temple, Hezekiah built a tunnel diverting the waters of the Gihon to the pool of Siloam in the south for the people. So they were clearly not used for the temple. In fact, placing the temple in the city of David so it could be fed by the Gihon is where Martin's theory fails spectacularly for the simple reason that water cannot flow uphill. Here we see Martin's reconstruction with the Antonia Fortress to the north on what we call today the Temple Mount. Martin's temple to the left is in the city of David. As we've seen, it's not possible to fit the Mishnah's Temple Mount of 500 cubits square onto the city of David, so Martin used Josephus's smaller measurement of 600 feet square. This way, it's just large enough to cover the Gihon Spring that can be seen flowing out from its base out on the left. It also covers the spring fortifications 
this Temple Mount, uh, this hypothetical Temple Mount, covers the spring fortifications and the houses higher up the, on the ridge that have, that have now been discovered and shown to be in use during the first Temple period. And that creates a massive problem for his theory. Uh, his Temple Mount also covers the area of David's palace on the top. But our focus is on the Gihon Spring lower down the slope. It should be obvious that the Gihon could not possibly be the source of fresh running water for Martin's temple because it's 50 feet lower than his temple. The Gihon is near the bottom of the slope, near the base of the platform, well below where it's needed at the top. To make matters worse, there was no other fresh water source or aqueduct that supplied this part of the city of David, so this temple would have had no fresh water supply. So the water argument actually disproves Martin's theory. Another problem with Martin's picture is that his temple platform covers the Jebusite fortifications around the spring, as well as structures higher up on top. But it's been shown that these have all continued to be used throughout the first temple period. At the top, they discover the foundations of a huge building called the Large Stone Structure, most almost certainly David's Palace, which was supported by a stone support structure called the Milo. At the base of the Milo, you can see here the houses that were in use until the end of the First Temple period. And this is called Area G. All of these would be covered by Martin's hypothetical temple platform, and even by Kornuki's smaller one. And so these stones declare this theory to be false. Now, it seems that Kornuki, to his credit, has realized that Martin's Temple Mount is impossible because of the discovery of the Jebusite fort around the spring and its ongoing use throughout the first temple. So he's come up with another reconstruction that you're seeing now. You can see that his temple platform is much smaller than Martin's and that the Gihon and Jebusite fortress is outside his Temple Mount, lower down the slope, in fact 50 feet lower. So after all the pleading, that the Gihon must be within the temple area, we find actually Kornuki's, in Kornuki's case, it's outside his temple area, outside his temple mount. So all the arguments of him that the Gihon must be within the temple are futile as actually he has them in two separate places. This reconstruction also makes it even clearer that water from the Gihon, where the Jebusite fortress is, could not possibly flow uphill to the temple. Also, Kornuki's claim that the temple is a perfect fit in the city, into the city of David is clearly false. false. He's forced to have a temple mount that is much too small for the measurements given in the Mishnah and even Josephus' smaller measurements. The temple area, his temple area, would be far too small for the huge numbers of people using it. There's only one place large enough to hold the temple and its courts, and that's the real temple mount. So we have to conclude that the real location of the temple is on the Temple Mount after all. And it would have looked something like this. And this is the place where one day, by God's sovereign hand, the Jews will build their third temple. Although what they don't know is that God will only do this to call them back to himself by reminding them that forgiveness is only through the shedding of blood. And the gospel will be declared to them through the preaching of the two witnesses that the perfect Lamb of God has already shed his blood for them and that they must therefore put all their trust in the Lord Yeshua as their true Messiah. This will be a major part in the national 
repentance and salvation of Israel, leading to their deliverance and their full national restoration and blessing at the second coming, when he will reign over the whole earth from Jerusalem with Israel as his chief nation in fulfillment of all that their prophets have spoken. <laughs>